I'm going to say something slightly different today than I've said it in the last several weeks. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. (laughs) Matthew chapter 11. We've moved on to another chapter, or we are moving on to another chapter today. Matthew chapter 11, and quite, and we're going to, it's, we're going to summarize a little bit. We're going to do a little summary. Um, I think that's worthy of doing such for where we are in the scriptures and what uh, Matthew is doing here in the scriptures. Um, we're going to read, I mean, I struggled this week while I was writing this sermon because appropriately, Matthew chapter 11 really strings together and I would love to be able to preach this entire chapter in one sermon, (laughs) but I don't think that time would allow for that, so it pains me to say that we're only going to be looking at a few verses today, Um, but um, the whole chapter kind of goes together to prove the same point that Matthew is trying to get across here in the life of Jesus at this point in time here. Uh, We're going to look a little bit about what at what Matthew is doing here. Uh, We'll be looking. Let's just start. Let's just read for the first um, several verses here. Matthew chapter eleven, starting in verse one, he says, "When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach into their in their cities." Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll start digging into this. Lord, I pray that you would put my thoughts together in a way that makes sense. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see uh, the beautiful um, glory of Christ today. I pray that you would help us to see the, the continuity of Scripture and how wise the authors were, how you had given them your spirit to show them wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would be able to understand it and see it in just some of these simple texts here today. Um, pray that you would be with us, you would guide us, that you would help give us to help solidify this foundation and help us to grow um, from the roots up through the stalk, up through the branches and into and to bearing fruit. Um, I just pray that you would be glorified today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if we're looking here, we just went through Matthew chapter 10, okay? Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus is bringing his disciples together and he's preparing them to do the things that he's been doing. And we've talked about this already many times. In chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus doing all sorts of things. Healing, raising the dead, um, preaching, teaching, all all sorts of things. Um, Casting out demons. And then in chapter 10, we see Jesus calling his disciples into doing some of the same work here. And now here in chapter 11, we're actually going to see that... John the Baptist is starting to question who it is that Jesus is. John the Baptist has been thrown into prison, um, and he's getting a little anxious, hoping that he hasn't screwed it up, that things are, things are what he thought they were, and that they aren't different than what he thought that they were the whole time. And then Jesus doesn't just give him a simple answer. He tells him to think about 
what he's been doing and make the decision for himself. Now that's a brief, a very brief overview. I want to talk to you a little bit about reading the scriptures though, because this passage gives us a good opportunity to practice, to, to learn a little bit about how the scriptures are written, okay? So in Matthew chapter 10, it strings together a lot of teaching um, where Jesus is sending out his disciples to go, to preach, to teach. He's giving them the rules of engagement. He's teaching them about who they're going to be engaging with. He teaches them to not fear. He teaches them about what's going to happen eventually because they take a stand for the name of Jesus Christ. But then he also reminds them about the rewards they look for in heaven if they are faithful to him, if they endure in this gospel um, sent from heaven. Um, but if we look in chapter in, in Luke, Luke also records some of these situations here. Um, Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, Well, actually, starting in verse 1, he's recording, it says the Luke chapter 10, verse 1, After this the Lord appointed 70, 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And then some of these verses sound very familiar. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest. I'm sending you out of midst lambs as lambs amidst the wolves. Carry no money, no knapsack, no sandals, and so forth. We remember reading these things. In Matthew chapter 10, don't we? And it goes on and so forth. But then you get to verse 13. This is part of the same instruction. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But here we see him bringing that up in Matthew chapter 11. After he has already gone out and started teaching in the cities, um, he starts talking about that in chapter 11, verse 21. This is not in the, in the instruction to his disciples prior to sending them out. This is after all of that. So we see here that there's a little bit of a difference in how these things have been divvied out through the Gospels. And even in chapter, if you look in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, this is way before sending them out and teaching a lot of these teachings. He says in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, and he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take no, no money for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money. You do not have two tunics. You know, some of these other things that he said in Matthew chapter 10. So it seems here that Matthew is putting together two different training sessions, one for the 12, one for the 72, putting them together in the same training session. And even in Matthew chapter 10, he doesn't say, well, he, you know, he says he called his 12 disciples together. Okay, and then he goes through who the disciples were, and then these 12 Jesus sent out. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with something like this, where it seems like Matthew is bringing together two completely different training sessions for two different groups of people, but presenting it as one? <laughs> I mean, I, when I was researching this, it just seemed a little different, a little interesting to me that Matthew would do this, where Luke keeps the two stories separate, the two different training sessions, he keeps them separate. Matthew puts them together and just gives, gives, gives it all at once. You know, and, and, and in Luke chapter, you know, seven, <clears throat> Luke chapter 7, um, well, here we go. 
And Luke chapter 7 records, okay, we, in Matthew chapter 11, we have this engagement with John the Baptist, questioning whether he's the Christ or not. But Luke records this in Luke chapter 7, before the training session, before either training sessions even happen. In, in verse, chapter 7, verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look through to another? Okay? And then down in verse 22, Jesus says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to him, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's what he said here in Matthew chapter 11. So why, are the, why is it scattered all throughout the book of Luke, but it's here in one neat little package in Matthew? Why, why is this going on here? And this is where it's good for us, because this stuff probably pops up as you're reading the scripture sometime. Like, oh wait, I thought he said it this way in the other book, or that way in this book, and why are these things like this? And it's important for us to see these things, but it's also important for us to understand how the scriptures were written, how these gospel writers wrote their gospels, okay? When I ask the question, what are the gospels? What is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What are they? A lot of us might, the first thing that comes to our head might be their biography of Jesus. Their Jesus' biography just told from a different point of view. And to a point that is correct. Um, and if it's a biography, when we, have you ever read a biography before? If you've read a biography, you know, there's plenty of missionary biographies in, in my office. And if you want to go read one, please feel free to pick one off the shelf. There's plenty of good ones in there. But if you pick up a biography and you start reading it, they're all written chronologically. This is what happened when they were a kid. This is what happened when they were a teenager. This is, you know, and then it goes chronologically through the years of this person's life. But when the Gospels are written by these, by these disciples of Jesus, they're not focusing on chronology. They're focusing on the glory of Christ and they are representing Christ in a particular way. Okay? Their first priority, and this is how a lot of stuff was written way back in the day. Chronology simply was not the priority for people when they were thinking about the life of a person. They would put events of their lives together so that they would paint a picture of the person. They were more interested in painting a picture of who the person was than they were trying to walk a person through the years, month by month, week by week of a person's life. And, and quite honestly, that makes a lot of sense, because why would a person write a biography? Because they want to paint a per picture of who this person was. And in the book of Matthew, he's painting a picture of who Jesus is, okay? He's not, he's not, his main priority is not taking you through a, the weeks, okay? And it's hard for us, because sometimes in the Gospels, it is chronological, okay? Like the last couple of weeks of, of, of Christ's um, ministry on the earth, for the most part, it's chronological. You have his birth at the beginning of a couple of the books, his death at the end. And, you know, a lot of this stuff does occur chronologically, but the purpose is not so that we could see a chronological biography of Christ's life. The purpose of the Gospels is these Gospel writers want us to know who Jesus is. <clears throat> The New Testament honor, and even if, and this is something that I learned when I was learning Greek, sentence structure does not work the same way as it works in English. In English, we like to put things in order from the first to the last, 
But in the Greek, sometimes the last part of the sentence comes first because it's more important. <laughs> and they would, they would switch around the order of words based off of importance. Not based off of how it's supposed to flow from the beginning to the end of the verse like we do it in English. But in Greek, it's all about what's more important. You put together the words that are the, you put the words that are more important at the beginning, less important towards the end in a lot of, in a lot of different cases. I mean, that's a generalization. But you get the idea. Things just, in the mind of the writers back here, things, their minds did not work the same way that our minds work. We like things neatly and in order. And they had an order. It's just not the order that we're used to. We like chronology. We like to see how the history unfolds. And, and quite honestly, a lot of that happens as you read the scriptures. You can see how things unfold. But in certain situations, like, for example, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. There are many people who believe that that was not just one sermon, but it was a conglomeration of a lot of Christ's sermons. And they just, in Matthew, put it together in one chunk, like books on a bookshelf. They're different books, but they're on the same bookshelf put together in the same category, perhaps. Um, I'm not sure if I necessarily believe that or not, um, but that's just another example of, you know, does that mean that Matthew was wrong in how he did it? No, it's not necessarily that he was wrong in how he did it. It's just he's trying to make a point. He's trying to show us something. He's trying to get something across. And here... He's trying to paint a picture of Jesus. And as you start, you have to take a step back for a second and look at how Matthew has been writing his book. You see that he, in chapters 8 and 9, how he puts together a lot of the miracles of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. He puts it together in a couple chapters of stories. And then he moves along where he's, Jesus is, is bringing us into his ministry, calling us and giving us his authority to do the things that he has been doing. Now, in chapter 11, we are seeing Jesus take this from a big perspective and revealing to John, not telling him the answer, but putting it in his mind that he is fulfilling the prophecies in all of these things. Okay? So, you know, this can be some deep stuff, and I'm sorry that if, you know, I, you know, the sermon will be recorded if you need to listen to it over and over again. <laughs> but for the sake of time, um, I can't lecture on this for, for hours and hours and hours, but suffice it to say that, you know, okay, Luke records it differently. Perhaps Luke's approach is a little bit more chronological in these, concerning these matters, because Matthew, if you remember way back to when we started the book of Matthew, Matthew wants to reveal to the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah and their King from Scripture, from the prophecies of the Old Testament. He uses a lot of quotations from Isaiah, and we're going to see a couple of those today. He, you know, Matthew quotes the Old Testament prophecies more than any other gospel writer in the Scriptures. Because his perspective, what he is trying to paint a picture of, is Christ is the Jews' Messiah. He is their King, the, the prophesied one that they have been looking for for centuries, for millennia even. He is the one that they've been looking for. Here he is. That's why one of the main priorities that the disciples are to have is to go in the towns and villages, find the worthy people who are willing to accept the fact that the Messiah is here. Go and preach to them the gospel of the kingdom. Go and tell them that their Messiah is here. They don't have to look any further than Jesus. Because He's there. This is your ministry. Go and testify of the kingdom that the kingdom of God has come. 
You're not waiting for it anymore. It's here. And this is something that Matthew is putting in to the ministry of Christ's disciples, having been called into the ministry of Christ to do the things that he's been doing, to prove to the people that they have been come, sent from God in the name of Jesus, who is the Messiah. And here in chapter 11, we are are given even more power in the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says in chapter chapter 11, he says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay? So Matthew, the way he's he's painting the picture of this Messiah, he has already painted the picture of Christ doing all these things in chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 11, we're called into that. Now John, John the Baptist, he's been seeing these things happening. He's been hearing the stories of people being healed, dead people coming back to life. Um, The good news is being preached um, to the poor. Now these things, Jesus is telling John, he's summarizing these things, but he's not just summarizing them. He is actually bringing his mind to the prophecies. These things that he is saying, and even some of the wording, is give, he's not saying, John, go look at Isaiah chapter, you know, such and such, and look and see where it says. Now he's giving him cues so that it draws his mind to the Scriptures, to what the Scriptures say about the Messiah. What do the prophecies say? He's giving him mental cues because he's supposed to know the prophecies. I mean, he himself is a prophet. (laughs) He surely has been well-trained from childhood. I mean, he's the son of a priest. John the Baptist is the son of a priest. He has been trained from childhood in the prophecies. So when Jesus is saying these things, it is bringing John's brain, his mind, to recall some of the prophecies in the Old Testament. For instance, look, well, actually, let me talk about John the Baptist first a little bit, okay? Um, In, let's see here, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, and this is just something that makes me chuckle a little bit. He said, Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, this is something we'll talk about more next, to it, next time we um, approach this chapter. But I want to I paint a picture of John the Baptist a little bit, see where he's coming from. And Jesus is telling the people, if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Okay, now Malachi chapter, uh, let's see, Malachi, I'm not, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, so there's already the prophecy in Malachi. This is actually the last prophecy of the Old Testament. The last thing that is prophesied is in the Old Testament, before the hundreds of years between the Old Testament and Christ comes, is that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord comes, okay? 
And Jesus is now recalling to the people that this is Elijah. John the Baptist is Elijah. Now, it's not just... (laughs) This is what makes me chuckle. Because in 1 Kings chapter 19, we see Elijah as being a man... Well, in chapters 17 and 18, we see him performing miracles. We see him on Mount Carmel, calling down fire from heaven, confronting and, and slaughtering the prophets of Baal with a, with a strong arm of God, according to the law of God, according to the command of God, just coming out as this he-man of a prophet <laughs> uh, who has faith beyond what we could even imagine having, having a relationship and a connection with God that is available to us, but we don't even consider it as being available to us because of the great things that he's been doing. He rises up, he slaughters all the prophets of Baal. And then what happens in the next chapter, in chapter 19? <laughs> Elijah kind of, the adrenaline drops, and um, Jezebel threatens his life, and Elijah just, or, yeah, Elijah just loses it. <laughs> he runs away. He's, I'm better off dead. I'm just going to die anyway. What's the point of life? <laughs> and he starts entering into despair. Because his life has been threatened. He has been this prophet, one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament. He is, you know, the epitome of a man used by God to bring about God's will in the Old Testament. And here he is in in 1 Kings chapter 19, just completely losing it, falling into anxiety and despair depression. God comes to his aid to encourage him and to rise him up and send him out in his will again. Okay, But now we see, just, just to see the, the similarities between the Elijah of the Old Testament and the John the Baptist in the New Testament. I just think it's, it's great to see. You know, we see in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, he's in prison. Okay? And in, you know, prior to this, he's been rebuking the Pharisees, he's been prophesying, he's been making straight the paths leading to the Messiah, he's had this profound ministry, Jesus says he's the greatest of all prophets, okay? And now John, the Baptist, is in prison, and he's starting to question his entire life's work. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound just like Elijah? <laughs> I mean, but it's, I mean, it's just to show <laughs> how God works. It's been, it was prophesied that Elijah would come again. And just you can see the personality of Elijah in John the Baptist. Where John the Baptist has had this great ministry for who knows how many years. Doing some great... I mean, I wish we, we knew more about the life of John the Baptist. Because if Jesus is to call John the Baptist the greatest prophet who ever lived, he must have done some amazing things in his life. Um, but we just don't have those recorded probably because we would probably, you know... He would, we'd probably pray to him too, you know, of all the other people in the scriptures that people pray to besides Jesus and the Father in the name of Jesus. But anyway, we see the personality of Elijah kind of shining forth through John the Baptist because he's in prison. He's been imprisoned because of what he was doing. He was doing mighty works of God, setting the stage for, Jesus, for the Messiah, the promised one. Are you the one who is to come? <laughs> verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He's starting to lose hope because he's been imprisoned. <laughs> I mean, in John 1.29, if you look at that real quick, I mean, he was fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. John 1.29, he says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, talking about John the Baptist, And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man whose ranks before me, because He was before me. 
<clears throat> you know, so, and he goes on and on and on. He was fully convinced at one point that this was the Messiah. Jesus is the prophesied one that they've been waiting for. He declared it to the public. And now he's in prison in despair. Are you the one who is to come or are we supposed to be looking for another? Again, you just see the personality of Elijah of the Old Testament shining through John the Baptist, who is the spirit of Elijah in the New Testament, who was prophesied in that last, those last couple sentences of the Old Testament. <laughs> and I just think that's a beautiful thing to see in Scripture. Um, and, and Jesus responds to John the Baptist. He doesn't just give him an answer. He could have just told his disciples, go tell John the Baptist, yes, I am the Messiah. Put his mind at ease. He deserves it. He's been working hard. He's given up his whole, he's given up all the pleasures of the world. He's been wandering out in the wilderness, just living in the wilderness, wearing itchy clothes, eating disgusting food, and whatever he could find on the side of the road, basically. And he deserves a little bit of, of an easy answer. Okay, I don't I shouldn't make him have to work for it. But he doesn't, he makes him work for it. Jesus answered them and he said, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Again, like I mentioned before, he is triggering his mind. He's causing him to recall the prophets. Okay, he's reminding him of passages like Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And verses kind of like in like chapter 26, verse 19 in Isaiah. Isaiah 26, 19, where it says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And like chapter 61 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2, where the scriptures say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Again, what did he say? Go and tell John what you see in here. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And the blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And you see all of these things being triggered by a very clear Language in the Old Testament, in the prophets, prophesying about the time of the Messiah. Prophesying about the time where the world would receive the promised one. And he's reminding John, not, he's not telling John, yes, I'm the Messiah. But he's reminding him, okay, what did the prophets say would happen when the, when, when the Messiah came? Remember, now what are the things that you're seeing me do? Do they line up? Or do they not line up? And he's leaving it still for John, even John the Baptist. He's still leaving it to faith. See what I'm doing. See what I've been doing. Remember what was prophesied about what I would do. 
Now trust what you know in the Scriptures. Look at the Scriptures. Believe them. Look at me. Now believe in me. He's still leaving it for John the Baptist to put faith in the revealed Word of God in the revealed person of the Messiah. He's not giving him the answer so that he wouldn't need faith anymore. He's still letting John the Baptist engage his faith in the Christ. You know, and a lot of times I've thought too myself, like, God, just reveal yourself. Maybe you've had an experience like this. God, just reveal yourself to me. I'm doubting. I'm struggling with doubt. I don't understand. God, would you just reveal yourself to me so that I don't have to wonder anymore? Times of, times of despair, perhaps. But then we're reminded that even in John the Baptist's time of despair, Jesus didn't make it easy for him. He still left it to faith. God wants us to believe because of our faith, not because it's easy, okay? And we must remember this. In times of despair, in times of worry, in times of lack, in times where things don't look like the way we think they should be going, God, I thought you loved me. I thought you were with me. Why is this happening? Just remind me that you're with me. And you know what? Sometimes God does entertain that. I've prayed that before and God has you know, reminded me in a particular way that he's with me by answering vividly some prayer or something like that. But nevertheless, the priority of Scripture is not to make the answers easy so that we don't need faith anymore. We, even those of us who've already come to faith in Jesus ought to also keep walking by faith. John the Baptist knew what his mission was. He was fully convinced at one point of his ministry that Jesus is the Messiah. And here, Jesus is telling him, keep having faith. Okay? You see what I'm doing. You know the prophecies. Now keep believing. In the midst of all your doubt, in the midst of your anxieties, keep believing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll end with this. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the passage that, that Rich read not long ago. First Peter chapter 2. And this is also... When he told John the Baptist, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And this is backing off of Isaiah chapter 14, 8, 14, and 15. He says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall unbroken. They shall be snared and taken. He says that the Messiah will be both a sanctuary and a stone of offense. There will be division in the land as far as the, recep the reception of the Messiah. Some will be offended by him. That's not who was supposed to come. And some will find him to be a sanctuary, a place of peace and goodwill toward men. Okay? And he reminded John the Baptist, Blessed are you, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse starting in verse 4, he, he piggies back off of this and he says, As you come to him, talking about Jesus obviously, a living stone 
rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, remember what the prophecy said, that he would be like a sanctuary to some? Some, And we are built into the sanctuary. We are drawn into his body. You yourselves are like living stones and being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to. Remember, he was reminding John the Baptist of what the word said. And he's saying the people who don't believe, it's because they aren't obeying the word. They aren't actually believing what the word said about the Messiah, and deciding, yeah, this is the Messiah, because of what the word said. That's why he was a stumbling block to them. Because they did not honor the word, they honored their own ways and their own expectations. In verse 9, he says, as they were destined to. In verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then he goes on. But here in this passage, (laughs) he is quoting the scriptures, in a sense the same scriptures that Jesus was quoting to John the Baptist. Because these, I mean, first Peter was written to the dispersed Jews, the people who were still, the Jews who were still living in the Gentile nations that had never returned home, okay? There were plenty of those people. Apparently, there was a way of finding many of them, because you know, le- that's who the letter was written to. And he is reminding them that you are not rejected because you are exiled. You are Just because you are exiled, just because you are still living amongst the Gentile nations, it does not mean that you are completely and fully rejected. He reminds them, and as he reminds us, who are the Gentiles, remember. We are the Gentiles. Who, if anybody was to be rejected, it would be us. But we have been brought in by the blood of Jesus. You are a chosen race, Okay. A royal priesthood. I mean, can you think about that? You're a priesthood. Those of us who are in Christ are priests before our God. We have access to the Father. We don't have to go to somebody who has access to the Father outside of our high priest, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't have to go to some other person because we ourselves are priests before our God. The priests were to bring people sacrifices to God. People could not do it themselves. No, we come boldly into the throne of grace ourselves, being made priests. We do not have to go to a priest any longer. 
Because we have access. Because of our our priest, our mediator, Jesus Christ. There is nobody that we have to pray to as an in-between between us and God. Because we ourselves are priests. We are a holy nation. We have been chosen and set apart as a peculiar people. A people for His own possession. He possesses us. He owns us. He has called us. He has made us His own. We are His treasure. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. He has done all of this. And what do we do? We proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Why is this so marvelous to us? Because once we were not a people, verse verse 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What excites our soul? Once we had no hope. Once we had no mercy, the judgment and the wrath of God was upon us. Do you remember that? Do you recall perhaps a time in your life when you look back and you recognize now that wrath was upon you? Because you had not been brought in. But now you've received mercy. Does that not thrill our soul that once we were on the edge of destruction? We were about to fall over just one gust from the breath of God's mouth and we would have been plunged over the edge into the chasm of destruction. We were there. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Perhaps peering over the edge of the Grand Canyon? Just thinking, man, if I fell... We've all all been there. Not the Grand Canyon, (laughs) but the Great Chasm. Of destruction. We've all been there. We've all been on the edge. Because of the wrath due our sin. We have been at a point where once we didn't have mercy. And now we've got mercy. Because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. He has called us to Himself. He has awakened our spirit that we may see the truth. And we have received it. That's how we've received mercy. And John the Baptist knew who the Messiah was and what he was supposed to do. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. (laughs) Behold, this is Him. It's Him. It's Jesus. Look at Him. I'm not even worthy of loosening the straps of His sandals. You call me a great prophet, but I'm no great prophet. Look at Him. I must decrease and He must increase. And we look to the same Messiah as the giver of mercy. We were nobody. God has made us somebody. We had no mercy. We deserved the wrath that was due us. It was just, it's just for God to condemn us. But He has shed His mercy to us in the man Christ Jesus because of His great love with which He loved us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. And that's who we are. We have been adopted into His family. We have been given mercy. We are the, we are the, um, the peasant in the slums 
whom whom the king has called into his courts, has given a bed in in his palace, only because of an eye of compassion. Not because we've done some amazing work, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, but because, his, his, because of His eye, His sovereign eye of compassion. That's the only reason. And I just want to end with this glorification of Jesus. He reminded John of what the Scriptures said. And you and I, when we are in a place of despair, like John the Baptist was, he was in prison, he was about to lose his life. I mean, he was right when he said, he, maybe he didn't know just how right he was, when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. He didn't know, perhaps John the Baptist didn't know that he would be decreasing to the point of beheading. But when we're in a moment like John, when we're in despair, we must look to the Word. See what the Lord has said and believe it. That's what, John told John, that's what Jesus told John. Look to the Word of God. Do you believe what it said there? Okay, now believe in me. Because I fulfilled all of that. I am he of whom it, these prophecies spoke. And you and I, we find our encouragement not from... What do you call it? Not from nice words. <laughs> you know. Not from being puffed up. We find our encouragement from the scriptures. You know, I've... I've Nothing against Christian music, but there's some Christian music out there. And like if you turn on a Christian radio station, I've been annoyed recently because all it's like, you know, it's all just trying to puff us up, you know. Nobody ever quotes scripture anymore. It's all just puffing you up. God loves you. Okay, well, where does the Bible say that? God thinks so highly of you. Well, where does the Bible say that? Can you quote me the scriptures? Because my confidence is in the scriptures. My confidence is not in a radio host. My confidence is not in the author of a book. Okay, you might be telling me these true things, but how do you know it's true? Show me the scriptures so that I might believe God, not you. That's what Jesus did because our encouragement ultimately must find its foothold here in the scriptures. We cannot look to those who seek to give us self-help ways of solving our life's problems as though that has a long-term effect. Why do you think these people make billions of dollars? Because you have to keep (laughs) buying stuff because it doesn't satisfy long-term. But the Scriptures, oh, they satisfy. Why? Because this is a firm foundation. And if John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who ever lived, had to be reminded of the Scriptures to find his hope, how much more do you and I need to look here to find our hope and our encouragement and our foundation? If we have let this go in our lives, let today be a time where we are reminded that I need to come back to this. I cannot keep relying on some pastor behind a pulpit to encourage me. The scriptures must encourage me because they are my firm foundation. Because in them, I learn of Christ, who is my rock. We all need a rock. We all need someone to lean on. Jesus is that rock. We must return to the scriptures so we may know him. 
so we may be convinced that we have God's mercy, so that we may know His grace and be reminded of His great love and affection, not just those things, but also His will for how we ought to go therefore and live. We must be in this. Not just me as your pastor preparing something to tell you. Each person in this room must be in this because it's our foothold. It is your foothold. It's not just my foothold. It's your foothold too. I'm only up here because I've been trying diligently to make this my foothold throughout the years. And my great desire is that it might be yours too, your confidence And if that's all that I ever accomplish in life is that I can convince people that this is all that matters, then I am ready to diminish. This is life. Let's see to it that it is part of ours.